Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Alex Weingarten. Alex is a partner at Venable LLP in Los Angeles. He's a commercial trial lawyer who represents clients in all facets of entertainment, probate, and business litigation. Alex has been recognized by publications from the Los Angeles Business Journal and the California Daily Journal to Variety and Billboard as one of the top 50 trial lawyers in Los Angeles and one of the top entertainment litigators in the nation. He's been involved in a number of high-profile estate litigations, including representing Robin Thicke and his brother in addressing the questions arising out of the estate of Alan Thicke, as well as the sons of legendary film producer Roger Corman in a suit looking to stop the sale of his films. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So our subject this week is the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. Now, before more attentive listeners get too up in arms, yes, we already covered Aretha's estate all the way back in episode 8. But like estate plans, estate conflicts are living, evolving things, and there have been some changes to this one that bear another look. Initially, when Franklin died in August 2018 at age 76, her family believed she had left no will. Lawyers who represented her said they tried in vain to get her to write one. Under the law in Michigan, Franklin's longtime home, that meant that her estate would be divided equally among her children. Franklin's sons unanimously nominated a cousin, Sabrina Owens, a University of Michigan administrator who was close to Franklin to be the estate's personal representative or executor. This was where things stood when we recorded our first episode about Aretha. We focused on the ramifications of intestacy. Now, things have drastically intensified since then. And nine months later, while going through Franklin's Detroit home, Owens found handwritten documents that appeared to be three wills. In them, Franklin criticized various people in her life, including a lawyer, an accountant, and the father of one of her sons, and specified how her assets should be split up among her children and grandchildren, in some cases giving her descendants less money than they would have received if there was no will. That discovery immediately divided Franklin's family, some of her sons asking the court to favor one document or another, and led to the removal last year of Owens as the estate's personal representative. In March of this year, Aretha's estate reached a deal with the Internal Revenue Service to pay off millions of dollars in federal income taxes that the singer owed during her life, clearing a major hurdle. However, mere days after this important milestone, a fourth typed but unsigned will was discovered, sowing even further chaos. The question of whether Franklin's wills are valid, and if so, which of them would govern her estate, is set to be litigated at a trial scheduled to begin in August. When we first looked at Aretha's estate, she had no will. Now there were four. Alex, this is not as uncommon a fact pattern as it may seem. 
What are your thoughts on how this situation may progress? And what are some lessons advisors can take from this cautionary tale to try and insulate their own clients from potential estate litigation? So you're absolutely right. It, it, it is far from an uncommon situation. Myself and, and, and many colleagues uh, around the nation um, stay quite busy because of disputes exactly like this. First and foremost, what planners can do to attempt to avoid um, having litigation uh, consume the estate after their client's passing is to do an estate plan. You know, one of the big lessons of, of the Aretha Franklin case is that there was no definitive final estate plan. My understanding is that Aretha's attorneys lamented the fact that they had for years attempted to get her to do an estate plan, um, but she refused to do so. Um, so first and foremost is getting an estate plan done. And, and, and that's important not only to avoid litigation, but the other significant drain on an estate's assets, aside from litigation expense, is taxes. And, and really the goal of any estate plan is to avoid litigation and more importantly, to achieve tax efficiency. So none of that accomplished without the benefit of an estate plan. So find a good estate planning attorney, draft an estate plan, and make sure that you have the benefit of someone who knows what they're doing, who can guide you through that process. Uh, another trick that I would, uh, not so much a trick, but something that I would urge anyone who's coming up with an estate plan to do, particularly where you have what I would call complicated family relations. Um, and you typically find this in situations where there are um, children of one marriage, but a spouse, you know, a second or a third spouse, um, or you have a lot of money, or you have, um, you know, some, some non-traditional relationships that are going to result in a non-obvious distribution of assets or some conflict is be explicit. Be explicit in what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. And to the extent that you can, communicate all of that while you're still alive. I appreciate that that is an uncomfortable situation for a lot of people and they don't want to have those conversations, but ultimately the best thing that you can do for your family, or if you want to make sure that you're doing whatever you can to avoid a fight after you're gone, is just to communicate it so there are no surprises and so that everyone knows exactly what to expect. Yeah, I mean, communication has been sort of one of the grand overarching themes of this entire podcast, sort of in the, the couple of years that we've been doing it. We sort of presented as the answer to everything, which is both simultaneously like a little silly and reductive, but also like kind of true and obvious that a lot of these conversations are super difficult to have now because we're dealing with death and taxes and difficult, as you said, family situations. But they're infinitely more difficult to deal with when the person involved is not there anymore to talk about how they feel and what they really wanted. And all of a sudden you're left kind of reading the tea leaves from this paper trail from you know, what's left behind to try to, you know, guess what they were thinking. I had a case very early in my career where um, I, I had the benefit of having spoken to the decedent before she passed. And she said, and I quote, I'll never forget that. She said, and I quote, they can all fight over it after I'm gone. She did not want to have the conversation. She did not think it was anyone's business. And, and ultimately, there, there was a very significant fight after 
um, her passing that consumed a substantial portion of the estate that otherwise would have gone to her children and grandchildren. So that was her choice in that particular instance, but absolutely, it is simple, it is reductive, and it's obvious for a reason. Communication is um, a very simple solution to most of these problems, really because when you're dealing with trust and estate disputes, money obviously is a significant portion of it, and the more money you're fighting over, the more intense those fights can be. But a lot of the time, these come down to complicated family dynamics that ultimately don't have a whole lot to do with money. You know, it has to do with this notion that, you know, mom liked me more than she liked you or vice versa, or you're fighting over, you know, what, uh, what a colleague of mine referred to as the red tricycle, you know, this, this seemingly valueless object um, that has now been a proxy for the emotion of your familial relationships um, that becomes an all-consuming endeavor. And I have to get it and prevent you from having it. Um, and that, that's unfortunately ultimately what these all come down to. But another factor that you have to consider here is just good old-fashioned greed. You know, a prime motivator of all of these disputes is just plain greed. I think you know, there's two very important things to unpack there, right? This idea of greed, I know we try to sort of cast our clients and their families in the best light and not be judgmental or be as unjudgmental as we can. But at the end of the day, everyone's human and sort of greed is, is a fairly natural, you'd always kind of rather have more money than less money given the option. So that's something that you're just always going to be fighting with and fighting against. But additionally, I like this idea that you brought up of the red tricycle and just wanted to expand on that a little bit because um, a lot of the times that red tricycle, it's not like the one sibling has been harboring a secret desire for it for his entire life and not told anyone, you know, then that'll, that'll come out in the communication. It's more likely that they don't know that they care so much about that thing or that they don't know that that thing is what's going to become the proxy for their getting revenge on their brother for the time that he scared them when they were 10, you know? And so that communication can help sort of uncover the underlying issue of the red tricycle as opposed to sort of identifying, you know, it's more about that than it is about identifying which of these items is the one that everyone secretly cares about because they probably don't know. Uh, it's, it's like in Citizen Kane, you know, where, where Kane's last words were rosebud and nobody knew what rosebud was and it was really just a symbol of something else. So you're absolutely right. It, it's not even that people have a conscious understanding of what that issue or what that object is going to be that becomes the manifestation of all of these other emotional issues, these emotional traumas that are going to play out. And it, it, it might not be that it was the case that that was going to be the, the, uh, the embodiment of all those things before the decedent's passing um, and, and something happens or nothing happens that makes that the issue. Maybe they just want that because the other person wants it. You never know what it is going to be um, necessarily, but to the extent that you do know, then again, communication is the key. If, if the decedent is very clear up front, and this is something I, is a conversation I have with clients to the extent that I'm involved on the front end, um, when planners get me involved in, in, the, in the discussion about planning um, so that I can you know, take a litigator's eye and really evaluate where I think the problems are going to come up, I tell them, if there are any, you know, items of sentimental value, if there are any, you know, family heirlooms, things of that nature that are going to be issues, then have a discussion about it. You know, because it might be that, you know, if if 
there's a family of three siblings and the estate is going to go to those three siblings and you have a discussion about this one family heirloom, it might just be that only one of those siblings wants it. It might be that none of those siblings wants it. You know, I had a case um, years ago where the decedent was obsessed with who was going to get her collection of mink coats thought that this was this was in her mind her prized possession and really was was fixated on this notion of who was how it was going to be divided and who wanted them and it turns out she had four daughters and none of them were had any interest whatsoever in these big <laughs> coats you know because there's there's a generational shift i've had other cases where it turns out that the the siblings were able to work out you know if two of them wanted this one thing you know this, this one situation i'm thinking of where there was a um, a medal um, that had been given to um, a grandparent, a military medal back uh, from China um, before the family had immigrated to the United States that became a, a lightning storm. Um, and that was the thing they were fighting about. And all it really took was one conversation where they were able to work out a situation where one person really didn't have any interest in it, another one was able to kind of horse trade and get something else that they wanted. And it all worked out in the end. Another common area that people fight over are engagement rings. You know, everybody wants Absolutely. mom's engagement ring. So, you know, and there, there are lots of different solutions to that problem as well. You know, I've seen situations where there's a sharing arrangement where, you know, one person will have it, you know, one month and another person will have it another month. I've, I've seen it where the jewels are split, um, where you, if you have a, a three carat diamond ring, um, they'll get it cut. So now you have two carat and a half diamond rings. There are all kinds of different solutions, but communication is really the key to anticipating and resolving all of them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the jewelry because I found in both my personal experience and my professional experience that that sort of jewelry and art are two of like the major lightning rods for these sorts of fight because it's just this weird confluence of like taste and sentimental value and monetary value that you can kind of not tell what's going to happen with them. And I've told this story before on the podcast, but you know, coincidentally, my father-in-law is an estate planning attorney. Um, and so, you know, you talked about horse trading. I, my wife and her brother are not that there's such an estate to distribute, but in terms of what their parents have, they've already done all the horse trading. They're, he's 70. They're not, he's, he's got a long time left. But because they've been so open about it, this, is, this stuff is all settled already. They've already sort of worked it out. And that's maybe a little extreme in terms of the communication expectation for clients. But something that's maybe a little more you know, reasonable to think of is I've also seen families with the jewelry idea do kind of like a jewelry draft. Where sort of you know all the jewelry was left in a pile for people to quote unquote fight over. And instead they sort of brought it all onto a table, the kitchen table. And they sort of decided an order. And then they just took orders, took, you know, took turns picking a piece until there was no jewelry left. And that way you sort of you sidestep all this, oh, who's going to get my minx? It's like, I'm just draft out the minx, you know? So there's, there's answers to these things if you're willing to sort of, you know, think outside the box a little or just even just talk about it a little. So to, to that point, in my own personal experience, before my grandmother passed, she sat down with her daughters, my mother being one of them, and they went through everything. And in that process, it was a wonderful experience because they were able to relive family history and, and share these fantastic emotional memories with each other by going through this stuff. 
And I think that ultimately that was more valuable to them than the things. And to the extent there was a discussion about who got what, it was really a connection to the memories associated with those things as opposed to the value. Because the few things that there were ultimately disagreements about had very little of any monetary value. It was their connection to cherished family memories. And through that process, something that everyone dreaded actually became a wonderful memory that they all treasure to this day. I think that's a really awesome point that you bring up. And it's something we haven't super touched on in the past talking about this topic is, you know, we, we kind of get fixated on the idea that, oh, this is a ghoulish conversation that is going to be sort of like mercenary in nature, you know, to head off an inevitable fight. But, you know, it doesn't have to be this negative experience, right? And it can be you're going through these things and, oh, I'd like this one. And let me tell you the story of why I would like this one. And, that, and that's a nice moment. And that's a really special sort of bonding experience, you know, especially towards the end of someone's life to sort of, you know, to, to bond and to sum things up and to really have this wonderful sort of recollection of what was going on. And I think I'm really glad you brought that up because that's, I think, a really beautiful sentiment that happens very often and is we kind of forget about when we get caught up in our, you know, how do we stop the fight? Who's greedy? Who's not? You know, kind of more dollars and cents discussion of this topic. Could, couldn't agree with you more. And, and it really, ultimately, listen, the families that are able to communicate these things, I find are stronger knit families. And so they are less prone to have these um, traumatic discussions because open and honest and frank communication is, is kind of interwoven into the fabric of the family. It's, you know, when the relationships are defined by stuff and by money, that's when you have more conflict and more problem and, and, and you'll have less of, a, of an ability to have those positive conversations around them. Mm -hmm. So thus far, we've mostly talked about the, the before aspect of things, the, the prophylactic measures, if you will, to sort of try to take before the fight breaks out. Um, unfortunately, you, I, my understanding is, tend to come in more often in the after, when there, there is now a fight. So you know, we talk a lot about oh, avoid, avoiding litigation, how to avoid litigation, you don't want to get involved in litigation, but we don't really talk as much about on this show like what that actually looks like. So if you don't mind, could you just sort of lay out for us? I know every case is going to be different, but sort of what this sort of estate litigation looks like, you know, just for our family? Um, litigation, estate litigation is frequently one of the most traumatic experiences a family can endure. And aside from the stressful, inherently stressful nature associated with any litigation, um, what I find is it is further intensely emotional because of the personal nature of what it is that you're litigating. And it also comes on the heels of a death in the family. And so you have all of these very complicated emotional issues tied up in the stress and angst that is already associated with litigation. You know, when you are litigating on behalf of Corporation A against Corporation B involving pile of money that ultimately will not have a material impact on either of those companies. Or maybe even if it does have a material impact, it's not an emotional issue for either of those companies. That, that's one type of litigation. But here, you know, you're, you're dealing with raw, naked emotion added to complicated family dynamics, added to really dealing with people at their absolute worst. You know, you've, you've got, you know, people grieving 
you know, combined with this sense of, you know, uh, of unresolved familial conflict and issues combined with, I've said it a few times, but I, I really can't emphasize enough, the inherent stressful nature of litigation. And so it, it is an incredibly traumatic experience. Um, and one of the things that drew me to this particular line of work was I find, you know, because I've, I've done and I continue to do um, general commercial litigation where I represent you know, companies and sometimes large companies in those types of matters, having nothing to do with, with um, trust and estate work. But for me, the ability to have a lasting impact in a positive way on people who really, really need a trusted advisor who's going to do what they can to kind of lower the temperature of the situation to the extent that that's an option. You know, listen. There, there are there are moments. I, I, I'm a trial lawyer, and so my first job is is to zealously advocate for the interests of my client, and that's always what I'm going to do. But there are lots of different ways to do that, and sometimes zealous advocacy for the interest of your client is making your client see that the traditional notion of zealous advocacy is not necessarily the way to go. That there is another path forward here, and that cooler heads do need to prevail. It's not always the case, um, but it frequently is. And it's, it's frequently lost um, in the heat of the moment. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, uh, our adversarial legal system is maybe not the best equipped for dealing with these sorts of fights where, you know, where by nature, you know, you're going to have a winner and a loser. And, you know, normally the winner and loser is, you know, who gets closer to what they wanted, right? But in this case, you know, a lot of times, you know, the winner and loser is less to do with the money and it's more like a long-term view of like, well, we all win if this family gets along again. And sometimes getting your client the most stuff and really sticking it to the other party, even though you're, they're winning, quote unquote, in the very short term in terms of the balance sheet, they've ultimately, you know, potentially created a problem that's never going to go away now. They're a fight that will never end. Um, so ultimately everyone will lose, whereas... You know, if, if you're taking a different tact in the, in the litigation, even now that there's already a fight to try to take the temperature down, as you said, then, you know, maybe your client ends up with a little bit less in the short term, but the fight is actually resolved. And, you know, so now in the long term, this doesn't come back up. And even if they're, it's never kumbaya again, there's not further litigation and further hatred. You're absolutely right. And you frequently see, even if there is an issue that's resolved involving one generation, if it's not resolved definitively, or if there are those lingering tensions, then it will continue and spill over into the next generation. And so you, you see these estates that get litigated kind of um, ad serium, where each successive generation has new issues that have to be resolved because it wasn't done right the first time. But aside from the more nebulous emotional aspect of the dispute and this notion that, listen, if, if we can work together, then we can heal those wounds, you know, prevent a further fracturing or splintering of this, of this family over this issue. There is a very real world consequence to litigation, which is it's expensive. Mm -hmm. And so the longer it goes on, the more contentious it becomes. It is, it can literally be a case of, of cutting off your nose to spite your face is that if your definition of winning is that the other side is losing, then yeah, that, that can be achieved. But frequently it's going to come at a significant cost to you as well, where whatever gains, monetary gains you might have achieved by getting one over on your sibling or 
you know, your your father's second wife or whoever it is that's your adversary in the litigation, you know, is pyrrhic because it costs you so much money to get there. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the human emotion of greed earlier, and I think this is also where fairly commonly you see the human emotion of spite come into play, where perhaps an initial fight is over, I don't know, a made-up number, $250,000, right? And, you know, one kid gets it and the other kid doesn't in the will contest, and, you know, and that's it. You know, one gets all, one gets nothing. Well, you know, the other the other kid maybe is not happy with that and is very aware of, okay, well, you got $250,000 that I didn't get. Well, now I'm going to bring further suits to make legal costs so that you end up having to spend that $250,000 very purposely on all these suits I'm going to bring against you now just to sort of get my own pound of flesh out, out of this deal because I'm so unhappy with how the first thing turned out. And like, that is something that happens, I won't say often, but it's certainly not uncommon. Um, it, it is not uncommon. And that is also, listen, there, there are certain instances you can't predict. And there's nothing that can be done to anticipate what those issues are and to plan for them in advance. Frequently, however, parents know who their children are. And I have seen and I have litigated instances where it is anticipated that there is a beneficiary who's going to be causing a problem. Everyone knows it in advance. And so you do what you can on the front end to try and plan for that eventuality. And you do that one, again, We've discussed it a few times already, but it really is the truth. Communication, being open and honest and telling that person, I, I, you are not getting, you know, Billy is not getting what Bobby is getting. And here's why. And, and, and document that to the extent that you can, you know, I had a case once where there were two siblings. One was um, comfortable. Uh, It was a son and a daughter. The son had their own business you know, was able to provide for his family, did not need the money. The other one, the daughter, um, was not as fortunate, had had a messy divorce, had a lot of financial problems, had some tax liens. There, there was a lot of, there were a lot of issues there. And so the parents made a conscious decision and decided that they were going to give the bulk of their estate to their daughter who needed it. This was not a very large estate, uh, but it was going to make a material difference to the daughter and not to the son. The problem they had was they, and they, they left a note. It was not part of the terms of the will or trust, but they left a note. They did not discuss it with him in advance, but they left a note explaining the rationale for their decision. And it ultimately resulted in, you know, a lot of litigation because his feelings were hurt. He could not believe that his parents, it had nothing to do with the amounts involved. It was that she got everything and he got nothing. And, and he then viewed that in conversations that I had with him and his attorney subsequently, he was so racked with guilt over this notion that he was a bad son and that his parents were punishing him for not being there when he needed them or, or whatever the issues were, that he was wrestling with those issues and doing it through litigation and trying to kind of lash out at his sister, who through no fault of her own, you know, was the beneficiary of this decision that her parents had made and and did not participate in that decision. So, but back to the point about planning for these problems in advance, you know, I've seen situations where, you know, there's a no contest clause written into a will or a trust that says, I anticipate that my son or my daughter is going to contest this because of X, Y, or Z. And the event, they specifically call out the person, say in the, the event that they do, um, they get disinherited. Or, you know, any fees, 
incurred in defense of their contest, you know, are charged against their distributive portion of the estate. And you put in specific disincentives um, in order to try and deter those challenges. And it works on occasion. Um, unfortunately, though, when you're dealing with very large estates, greed is a very powerful motivator. You know, one, one of my, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the television series, The Simpsons. And one of my favorite lines that I use from that show when I'm talking to clients is, um, there's a scene where, uh, you know, Mr. Burns is the richest man in Springfield. Um, and a little boy goes up to him and says, gee, Mr. Burns, you must be the richest man in the whole world. And he says, ah, yes, but I'd gladly give it all up for just a little more. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is ultimately what motivates a lot of the work that, that I do, is just pure old-fashioned, unadulterated greed. Um, and so you can plan for it, you can anticipate it, you can you know, develop any bells and whistles that you, um, that you can incorporate into an estate plan, and ultimately, you know, it's all going to be for naught because greed is greed. And the best example I have of that is one case I had where uh, the decedent was a very wealthy woman worth hundreds of millions of dollars, self-made. Um, she had one son um, who was just a terrible human being by any objective measure of how people should behave, just failed in every single one of them. And probably because he was the product of, of, of poor parenting, had just been overindulged, and so never really developed into anything productive um, or useful. Just had this off-putting sense of entitlement that everything that his mother had worked her whole life to build was rightly his. And she disagreed. He was well provided for. He had received a lot of money throughout the course of her life and real property and other things and was generously provided for in her estate plan. But the bulk of what she had was going to charity. Um, charities that she supported and a charity that she had created that was really kind of fulfilling her life's passion. And it was all extremely well documented. Um, there were multiple iterations of a plan. She was constantly refining things. There, she, she was examined by you know, respected geriatric psychiatrists during each amendment to her plan. Everything was as buttoned down as it could be. And then after she passed, her son came forward with what he claimed was a deathbed amendment to her estate plan, giving him everything. And it was a handwritten piece of paper that was completely illegible. I mean, there were, there were handwriting experts that looked at this thing. <laughs> that, that all, even his handwriting expert that opined, I can't really make out most of this, but he insisted that the, the day she died in the hospital, literally lying on her deathbed, that she recanted all of the other sophisticated, complicated efforts she had made to you know, achieve tax efficiencies and provide for dozens of beneficiaries and all these charities to dispose of her estate worth hundreds of millions of dollars with this handwritten note. And that litigation took years and a lot of money to eventually resolve. So, you know, greed is a, like I said, a very powerful factor and, and you know, people can get very, very creative in their pursuit of the almighty dollar. Yeah, and obviously you know, logic sometimes doesn't have a, uh, takes a backseat, you know, even when presented with all the evidence in the world, um, you can either not care about it and, you know, 
try to get one over on people or you can internalize it like your other client you were talking about did. And you know, even though you've been presented with their explicit reason, all your neuroses create your own other reason why this really happened. And, and that turns into its own thing. Unfortunately, you know, we're running out of time. I'd like to thank Alex Weingarten just for being a fantastic guest. Thanks for coming on, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.